This is Main Street on Prairie Public. I'm Craig Blumenshine. A little bit later in the show, we'll go to the movies with Matt O'Lean. He'll review Women Talking, which is up for two Academy Awards. But first, it's time for our monthly Journalist Roundtable. Joining us from our Bismarck studios today is Prairie Public's News Director Dave Thompson. Dave, welcome back to Main Street. Thank you, Craig. Appreciate it. Jeremy Turley is a Bismarck-based reporter for the Forum News Service. Jeremy, welcome. Thank you for having me. And Jack Dura is the Capitol reporter for the Bismarck Tribune. Jack, welcome to Main Street. Hello. Jack, I want to visit with you first about an article that you've written about. And, of course, taking a lot of oxygen in Bismarck are issues relative to transgender rights. And you've, um, the headline for your bill was the North Dakota House passes transgender restroom bills. Raft of trans bills goes to the Senate. Bring us up to date. So the House of Representatives this session has handled, oh, I'd say about a dozen at least that uh, bills that would impact transgender people. Everything from using restrooms, participating in sports, um, accessing gender-affirming care, even amending birth records. Um, all of these bills, which um, the uh, bill opponents say, would they're, they're, they the, say they're harmful and uh, discriminatory towards transgender people. All of these bills pass with veto-proof majorities and now go to the Senate. The bill supporters, the arguments they mainly present are that these bills would protect children as well as women and girls. What's the prognosis of these bills in your view? Um, both all will pass, what will come to the surface, and what does the governor say? Well, if, if we kind of follow what happened two years ago when there was really mainly only one of these these bills that would have restricted transgender girls and K-12 athletes, um, that did pass the House and Senate, but Governor Burgum uh, vetoed the bill and the Senate sustained his veto. So if, if we follow that um, progression from two years ago, we would probably see many of these bills pass the Senate and go to the governor, but it's unclear what he would veto, if anything, he uh, cited the North Dakota High School Activities Association uh, uh, transgender student regulation in vetoing the bill um, two years ago. Um, it, it's unclear what he might do this time around. He hasn't, um, he hasn't commented. The issue to me became nationally prominent when the Penn State swimmer, a transgendered um, woman, um, did very well at the NCAA Swimming Championships a year or two ago. Have there been issues in North Dakota where this has surfaced at the high school level? Uh, not that we've heard of. Um, I'm, I believe there was only one um, transgender student in 2021 who testified on, on, on a bill. I believe um, that they were a middle school student, and they I think they essentially said they... Um, worked it out with the coach at their school, um, but the bill supporters say we need to pass these bills because we need to ensure fairness in, in women's and girls' sports. Um, but it's, it, it appears there are no transgender athletes in North Dakota. Jeremy, I want to visit with you about um, a gun control bill that you've written about recently, sure. and the question is, is who can have guns and where can they carry them? North Dakota is obviously a very conservative state, How's this bill progressing through? So there, there were several bills that would have um, expanded concealed carry of guns in North Dakota. Um, really, only one or two of them have gotten through, and they're pretty minor changes, one including that would allow uh, non-residents of North Dakota to carry concealed weapons. Um, we saw several bills fail um, that would have allowed concealed carry in the North Dakota Capitol and other public buildings, one that would have allowed um, veterans of, of the armed forces to carry weapons in public buildings, including schools. Um, so really, I, I guess for the proponents of these, these gun bills, um, it, it's been a slow session compared to two years ago. And there was that one bill about um, setting aside 15 percent of the state's funding of K-12 schools for school um, protections, but you could get it down to 5% if you allowed concealed carry in the school mm -hmm. buildings, which failed. Right. So, And so, you know, two years ago we saw um, what some people would call the stand-your-ground bill pass. Um, that was a meaningful win, I suppose, for 
the National Rifle Association and other proponents of these gun bills, they have not had the same kind of success this session. This issue is up for further study. Is that what I understand? Yes, they did pass a study, which um, people who pay attention to the legislature will note is one way that you kill an idea that you don't really want to implement into law. Um, But there will be a study of place designations where you can carry a concealed weapon in the state, and that follows a Supreme Court case um, from last year that sort of said, um, a conservative majority on on the court said, um, we will not uphold gun restrictions that do not have a traditional historic basis. And so I guess we'll see in two years what that means for North Dakota. All right, let's move on. Um, We've talked before, Dave and I, about um, measures relative to the Divine Benefit Retirement Plan. Um, Issues are as whether the current plan can remain solvent. Dave, bring us up to date. Well, we have – each house has passed a different version of a retirement bill. The House has passed a a plan to go to what they call a defined contribution plan, which is kind of like a 401K or Roth IRA, where state employees would – you know, and the state would also match money put into a retirement plan. And the proponents say that that's portable because the newer, younger generation doesn't stay around for 40 years like some of us have. They they like to change every three or five years, you know, different different jobs, different different careers. At the same time, the Senate has a plan to keep the defined contribution plan going for new workers if they choose. I think you mean defined benefit plan, Dave. The defined benefit plan. They're going to allow defined contribution if they want it. That's that's right. You know, we get so hung up on defined contribution, right. defined benefit <laughs> plan. Sometimes they're interchangeable. But, yeah, I, I, this I think is going to be one of the last five issues of the session that's going to be decided. It's going to be a lot of tug and pull. Pensions are primarily becoming a thing of the past in America. Um, obviously, the state has an interest there in solvency. Where, where do you see this ending up this session? That is a darn good question. I don't exactly know where it's going. I know there's a lot of support for a defined benefit plan saying it's a, it'll attract some people to come to, to work in North Dakota, to come to work for the state. But there are those in the defined contribution say, we're going to attract younger workers by allowing this portability. I think it's going to if I were a predicting person and I had money to bet, I would bet the leaders will get together in a locked, in a locked room and, and hash it out. Yeah, there's, there's usually one or two issues that um, are the major hang-ups at the end of a session. And I think pretty much everyone is expecting this one to go yeah. to midnight on the 77th day of the legislative session. Right. It, um, it's worth noting that the governor uh, supports the House bill, which would transition to a defined uh, contribution plan. Mm-hmm. What has the tenor of this session been in your view? And I'll ask that of all three of you. Relative, it seems to me, a somewhat calm session. This is an outsider looking in. What are you experiencing day to day? Well, there's a lot of new faces, I'll say that. Mm-hmm. Um, nearly a third of the, le- of the legislature is new. We have new – three of the four legislative leaders um, are, are new in that position. They've been around for previous sessions, of course, but this is their first time in those leadership roles. Um, We've seen a lot of debate, um, some interesting, colorful comments in those debates. Um, but I, I, I would say, you know, that is probably what stuck out to me the most is just a lot of new faces at the legislature um, helping to row the boat. I, I would say that um, there, there's sort of always been a, a – tug of war within the Republican Party for what to focus on. And we've seen that intensify this time between those sort of fiscal issues, the tax cuts, um, and um, the, the budgetary matter, matters versus sort of these culture war issues. Um, those have played a, a major role this session. Um, Jack talked about some of the, the bills to restrict tran- transgender activity in the state. There have been many more bills like that this session than, than I can remember last session. I come from Wyoming where I covered the legislature. There's a group of the farther right Republicans that have organized themselves into what's called the Freedom Caucus, and they are gaining in strength and in certainly in numbers. Is that what you're talking about, kind of a more conservative part and a more moderate part of the Republican Party since it's such a Republican-dominated legislature? Yeah, I mean, I guess here they're called the Bastiat Caucus, mm-hmm. which is named after an obscure French philosopher um, from hundreds of years ago. Um, freedom might be a more 
recognizable term, but mm-hmm. yeah. um, it, it is it is sort of what we're talking about here. And I, I don't know if the the lines in terms of the the caucuses and the participation in the caucuses are, are that clear. Um, we don't know who's in the the so-called Bastiat caucus, but um, there is certainly a political division mm-hmm. yeah. that is noticeable. And the, the the worry is if you've got a supermajority like you do with the Republicans, then you start seeing fissures in that supermajority. We've seen that over and over, both parties. When the Democrats had a supermajority in the Senate, we saw it in the 80s. So you see fissures that are along more um, ideological lines. It's also probably notable that um, with all the new people that came into the legislature this past uh, year, a number of the people who were uh, aligned or associated with the Bastiat Caucus are no longer there, such as uh, Representative Rick Becker, who uh, founded the Bastiat Caucus about a decade ago. He uh, chosen out the seek re-election and ran unsuccessfully for the U.S. Senate. We're visiting with Prairie Public News Director Dave Thompson, Jeremy Turley, a Bismarck-based reporter with the Forum News Service, and Jack Dura, a capital reporter for the Bismarck Tribune, all part of our monthly journalist roundtable. Jack, the state auditor and lawmakers have sparred in recent years. There's, there's issues now between the legislature and the auditor. Bring us up to date there. So Josh Gallion has... Um, I guess drawing attention might be the most appropriate f- phrase for how he has handled um, uh, various uh, audit findings over the years. Um, this has vexed a number of lawmakers, particularly in the Republican Party, of which he's a member. Um, just, you know, they have been irritated with how he's publicized some critical findings before they've been aware of them and how he notified the attorney general a few years ago of some uh, irregularities in the Commerce Department that sparked a criminal investigation but resulted in no charges. So once again, we kind of have this clash between the the state government's top financial watchdog and Republican lawmakers, this time over the fees his office has charging to local governments for their uh, regular uh, audits. The state auditor says, look, they can choose to have this done by the private sector or they can choose us. We're cheaper. Is that how's that response went over? Um, I would say, you know, that's certainly what Josh Gallion and his office say. I would say that um, the the other side says your fees are they appear to be increasing and there are discrepancies in your fees. The the bill sponsor representative uh Emily O'Brien, Republican of Grand Forks, says she brought the bill after um, looking into some of these uh, fee increases and what she calls discrepancies. Um, she brought a bill that would cap the fees that the state auditor can charge, um, and it passed the House pretty um, overwhelmingly after a resounding do-not-pass vote, which was un- I would say that was um, unexpected. And it came back after being amended by the House Appropriations Committee um, now the bill essentially uh, sets a requirement that um, the audits reviewed by the state auditor's office have to be reviewed and approved by a person who's a certified public accountant. Josh Gallin is not a certified public accountant. He said he found finds that requirement somewhat in, uh, somewhat offensive, given the uh, what he says is is a diverse background of disciplines and skill sets on his his staff who are conducting these audits. And now that you've got to the point where there's some, if I want to put it this way, name-calling. because mm. Yes. Yeah, yes. Because uh, Josh Gallion had talked about corruption in the legislature and somebody, and I don't know who, maybe you know Jack, somebody said something about money laundering. Uh, yes. Yeah, so when uh, Representative O'Brien's bill received its first House vote, it, it passed the House twice, um, you, you might recall, um, Representative David Munson, a longtime budget writer in the House, raised – he raised a comparison to money laundering for how these audit fees are charged and collected and kind of cycle through the state's revenue collection. You know, I think everyone would agree the state auditor is not laundering money. That, of course, is a crime. Um, and he um, wrote an op-ed where he, as you say, Dave, he he threw around the corruption word. Um, so there's a little, maybe some... A war wounds. of words, yeah, right? Or maybe some wounds right. that need to be healed. Yeah. If you want sort of the political subtext here, I think it goes back to the divisions within the Republican Party that you can see. The auditor, Josh Gallion, is maybe more closely aligned with the ultra-conservatives, the Bastiat Caucus, 
um, many of the budget writers and power players in the legislature are sort of traditional Republicans. Jeremy, <clears throat> to turn the page, now you've written uh, um, about a bill that would shine light on the Bergen-funded campaign group, PAC funding. What's going on there? Well, PAC is actually a misnomer in this case. The, the designation with the state is uh, multi-candidate committees. That's the designation that Governor Doug Burgum has uh, used to uh, send out campaign donations to um, fund political advertising in the state over the last two election cycles. Um, his group is called the Dakota Leadership PAC. It is um, one of the one of the largest players, I guess, in campaign finance in the in the state. Um, the governor put 1.4 million dollars into that group last year, 3.2 million dollars in 2020, and the bill that passed the House um, earlier this month would require his group to disclose how they spend their campaign cash. Um, a feature of campaign finance laws in the state is that multi-candidate committees don't have to disclose how they're spending their money. Most of the groups that fall under that designation are party-affiliated. You might think of caucus groups or sort of like the House Republican um, pool of money that goes out to all sorts of different causes and candidates. Um, the governor's group is really an outlier in that designation and um, in the fact that uh, they don't have to disclose where their money is going is upsetting certain lawmakers who feel like they've been targeted or their seats have been targeted by that group. Jeremy, could you talk about the interesting partnership between two lawmakers in the House on one particular bill on this issue? There was a bill that failed um, that was tackling a slightly different issue that you might call dark money. That's money that comes from an untraceable source. So in the case of Governor Burgum's um, Dakota Leadership Pact, we know where the money is coming from because they are a multi-candidate committee. There is another designation called an independent expenditure filer, and they have sort of the opposite requirements where they don't have to disclose where their money is coming from, but they do have to say how they're spending it. Um, one notable group uh, that has fallen under that designation is the Brighter Future Alliance um, that is backed by Pat Finken, who is a former advertising executive with Odney here in Bismarck. Um, that group has targeted multiple conservative candidates in the legislative races and local races over the last couple of years with negative advertising, attack advertising. And so there was a bill this year that was a collaboration between Democrats and ultra-conservative Republicans to clamp down on dark money. It did fail in the House by a, a rather narrow margin, I would say. Uh, but what we've seen is there's a lot more appetite within the Republican Party, particularly on that more ultra-conservative side, for uh, reforming campaign finance laws since some of this campaign cash has gone towards targeting their campaigns and their races in recent years. Has the governor weighed in on these issues since the legislature gaveled in? The governor does not comment on bills unless he wants to comment on bills, and he did not want to comment on these bills. But the uh, opponents to the bills, Jeremy, they oppose these bills um, generally because they would be burdensome, correct? The uh, reporting requirements, isn't that the general argument against them? Yeah, I would say that's the general argument. There there really hasn't been like a ton of opposition discussion, um, but but that is sort of what you see is is that largely these are, they say, overly burdensome requirements that would requires some reform within the, the Secretary of State's online system, which, um, if you ask any reporter, is, <laughs> is difficult to maneuver. And I, I'm sure it's the case for candidates as well. And so um, basically the, the idea is they don't want to burden people who, who give donations. Um, and, and they say some of these bills would do that. There's one particular senator, uh, Jeremy, Senator Magram, who gave you a rather interesting quote about this. Would you share that with us? Yeah, he said, he said when I asked him about sort of the dark money issue, he says, I need to know who my enemies are. Mm. And, um, you know, he, he's sort of the, the cowboy type figure in, in uh, the North Dakota legislature. And, and uh, he said it in a way that makes you think he really wants to know who his enemies are. Dave, the House is continuing to work on or has passed now um, several bills relative to income tax relief. Right. There are three of them. 
House Bill 1158 eliminates the tax for single filers who make $44,750 or less and unmarried filers making $74,750 or less. And it sets a flat tax of 1.5%. Now, that's that's one of the big motivators on this. The governor likes a flat tax. The governor wants to say this is going to get people to come to North Dakota. We're eventually on a path to having zero income tax. And so the other one is... Tax credits first, $800 for single filers, $1,600 per married, and the flat tax rate is just under 2%. Then there's one that basically calculates individual income tax based on general fund revenues. Now, these three have all passed, and the sponsors of the three, basically, you know, Representative Craig Hedlund, who is the chairman of House Finance and Tax, say, we're going to get them over to the other house, and this is going to be a major conference committee to watch. And I, I think he's right on that. Jeremy or Jack, any input into the tax relief bills that are progressing through? Yeah, I, I think you know you're, you're you're setting the stage for sort of a showdown between the two houses of the legislature. Mm-hmm. The Senate seems to maybe favor property tax relief to a greater extent. The House, you know, harder to read, but I would say that the income tax proposals have have flown through that chamber. And so, like the uh, like the pension plan, this might be one of those issues that comes down to the last few days of the session and. I think it's probably likely from talking to legislative leaders now that you'll try to they'll they'll try to combine these proposals in one way or another a mix of income and property tax cuts. Mm-hmm. And it might come the property tax might come through that bill that uh our Senator Shibley has. Right. And that's that's to increase the per pupil payments to schools and you know cut down on the amount of mills that have to be raised in order to be part of the Part of the formula right now it's sixty mills, and they want to go down to forty mills. Now the Shibley original proposal was thirty mills, and they're talking about three percent and three percent increases for the next two years for K twelve. This is all going to go into that one conference committee. I'm I'm pretty sure you're right. right. It's going to be one of those conference committees that you have to watch. And and if you're not as astute as Dave Thompson with with looking at uh, legislative documents, I don't recommend that you read that that bill. Um, <laughs> that Senator Shively is sponsoring. It looks very complicated. Really, in fact, it's just the state taking on more of the burden of funding K-12. That's right. When you get the whole discussion about what is a mill versus actual dollars and what is valuation, what does 3% mean on a per-pupil payment, it's over $10,000 per pupil is what we're paying right now. So So if if the mills means nothing to you, the per-pupil payments mean nothing to you, you're not alone. I'm in that boat too. (laughs) But um, basically that bill is just... uh, the state taking some of the tax burden off of taxpayers. That's correct, yes. We have about a minute to go before we're going to break for the news, Dave. And let me just ask you about a recent story you've talked about, and that's tenure and university professors. What's going on there? This is really interesting. It it comes from uh, Dickinson Representative Mike LaFour, who is the House Majority Leader. And if I could be so bold, it seems to be because there's some unrest at Dickinson State University about some things the president and the administration have done. And so he's come up with this plan to make it easier to get rid of tenured faculty. There, there's a whole procedure if you want to get rid of tenured faculty, and he wants to simplify that. And some of the arguments you hear in favor of that is North Dakota is a right-to-work state. We have um, much more to talk about, and we'll do that after this news break. We'll be back with Prairie Public News Director Dave Thompson, Jeremy Turley, Bismarck-based reporter for the Forum News Service, and Jack Dura, the Capitol reporter with the Bismarck Tribune. Back after this break for the news. For Prairie Public, I'm Danielle Webster. North Dakota's Public Service Commission has issued a cease and desist order against Bright Sound Communications after a number of complaints were received about the company. Here's Commission Chairman Randy Chrisman. Subscribers reported that they received sales calls from a representative of Bright Sound claiming to be affiliated with that subscriber's long-distance provider. The callers urged the customers to switch their long-distance services to BrightSound due to their current long-distance provider no longer offering long-distance service. In each instance, the current providers confirmed to our staff that they have no affiliation with BrightSound, nor did they have any plans to discontinue long-distance services. 
Chrisman says Brightsound has now been ordered to stop all marketing of telecommunications services in North Dakota. A new tick-borne disease is killing cattle in the U.S. Tylaria is carried by the Asian longhorn tick, an invasive species. Teresa Steckler is a beef industry expert with the University of Illinois Extension. She says the disease could have devastating effects on cattle herds, and that could lead to a decrease in beef supply. If this were to really take hold and spread like wildfire, we would see increased prices. Steckler says tick prevention is the best way to slow the spread of the disease. There currently is no approved treatment for Tylaria in the U.S. Tylaria has so far been detected in seven states. And Minot Mayor Tom Ross says he is hopeful this week's meeting with Senator John Hoven and Postal Service officials will set things in motion to correct problems in mail delivery in Minot. There were times that residents in the Minot area, I would say they would go without mail service for up to two weeks at a time. Mayor Ross says Thursday's roundtable meeting with Senator Hoven is a follow-up to talks held last summer. Ross, who also helps operate an assisted living center, says the irregularity of mail service is a cause for concern. You know, these people rely on mail for so much of their lives. You know, they're, they're that population that they pay their bills by check. And when they can't, uh, when they're not getting their bills on time, they can't pay them on time. And the fear of losing services, you know, because these people never missed a bill. Ross says the issue stems from a lack of workforce as well as system management. He's hoping the meeting will trigger solutions to the issues. For Prairie Public, I'm Danielle Webster. This is Main Street on Prairie Public. I'm Craig Blumenshine, and we continue our monthly journalist roundtable. Joining us from our Bismarck studio, Dave Thompson. He's a Prairie Public News Director. Jeremy Turley, a Bismarck-based reporter for the Forum News Service. And Jack Dura. He's the Capitol reporter with the Bismarck Tribune. Oftentimes, when we review a legislative session, we talk about everything that passed. But, of course, there are bills that haven't passed. Give us a roundup of some that have come to your mind? Um, Well, I think for the third session in a row, we have not passed um, the legalization of uh, edible products for medical marijuana patients. This this follows the 2016 ballot measure that legalized medical marijuana. Um, A program got going, got up and going and was available, I believe, in 2019. But, you know, tinctures, lotions, smokable products, those are really that's only available to those patients um, and so for the last three sessions, 2019, 2021, and this year, um, lawmakers have sought to approve uh, ed- edible products for, for these patients, but they need to overcome a two-thirds majority to do so, and they have not been able to overcome that threshold. So um, I believe, Dave, correct me if I'm wrong, in 2025, this this measure would only need a majority vote. That is correct because it was of a the time elapsed since no. 2016, yeah. right? So that's a bill that has not passed. Another notable one, I think, would be um, a bill by the House Majority Leader to require identifying information from open records requesters, your mm-hmm. name and address, etc. Again, something probably uh, spurred by some unrest in Dickinson. Yes, yeah. Um, and also in the last couple of years, I believe uh, a number of election officials throughout the state have been mm-hmm. um, deluged with these copious requests, a lot, um, a lot of them um, I- identical for election-related information, um, which has vexed the officials who receive these requests. The bill failed spectacularly, um, and that, of course, was one that did not move on. I'll, I'll talk about a couple of the other bills that didn't move on. Um, there was a, another sort of Democratic-led initiative to establish a state-administered paid family leave program. That one failed. Um, that has failed in the past as well. There was another proposal to limit prescription drug prices for state employees. Really, that's public employees, I should say. Um, insulin costs there was the driving well, force in, there. Insulin, that, that's actually a separate bill, and I was, mm. was going to touch on that next because that one sort of surprisingly passed in mm-hmm. the Senate, um, and, and that would uh, cap insulin prices for people on this public employee's insurance plan. That bill will go on to the House. But there was another bill, a broader bill, to limit prescription drug prices um, kind of across the board of some of the most expensive prescription drugs. Um, that would have based the prices for those drugs on a Canadian reference price. It was kind of an interesting mechanism. 
that one did not pass. Um, and then there were a couple other bills that, that may be notable. We talked about some of the gun bills that didn't pass, but there was also a bill to mandate two House committee chairs be women. Um, this is a, a, a sort of a, a historic debate between uh, members of the House. There hasn't been a, a House committee, a House standing committee chaired by a female lawmaker in 10 years. Um, I think the last one was Rayanne Kelch, wasn't it? You would remember better than I did. <laughs> Meanwhile, in the Senate, there are three committees chaired by women. That's right. correct, yes. Um, even though the Senate is made up of, of fewer women by proportion than the House. Um, but that bill failed as well. And the one that I'm, I'm kind of looking at, and I'm not really surprised that this failed, but the idea that the, that the Attorney General wanted to move the administration of the crime lab under the BCI Bureau of Criminal Investigation – that was taken away from BCI a number of years ago because defense attorneys were saying, oh, you've got the thumb on the scale. So they decided to, you know, have it at arm's length to make sure that everybody knows that the crime lab is doing its business. Well, the, the attorney general, Drew Wrigley, wanted to put it back under the control of BCI, and that failed. There'll be some further study, though, Dave. Won't there be relative yeah, to the state crime Yeah, at least that, that is a study. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a mandatory study. I believe that, that it is. Jeremy, you wrote, um, talked about women's issues, just our um, women represented at least um, as committee chairs just a moment ago and other women's issues. But one of the items that has passed the legislature is what to tax and what not to tax. And a woman's issue came up in that relative to feminine hygiene products. What happened there? Correct. So um, the, the House has, has shown great appetite for exempting uh, specific items from sales tax this session. Perhaps most notably, you might see a, uh, a tax exemption for baby diapers. Um, that is going through to the Senate. They've also exempted a, a number of sort of specific industry products for building everything from um, biofuel refineries to coal processing plants to hospice facilities the only sales tax exemption the House um, voted down was one that, that would have um, made tampons and, and pads tax-free. The pink tax, as some women call that. Correct. What was the argument to vote that down, or was there much discussion? There really wasn't any discussion on the House floor. And I did ask the bill sponsor perhaps why there wasn't discussion, she said, she had talked to, to folks before that vote and knew that it wasn't going to pass, and that was sort of a late night, so she wanted to save everybody a little bit of time. But um, when I asked the, the House Majority Leader why he voted against that, he said, you know, this is a difficult line to find, but we have to draw the line somewhere on what we exempt from taxes, and, and that's just one that, that didn't pass. Jack, you've written about House Bill 1167, and that's whether um, polling places must be physically defined in the state. Tell us more. So this is one of numerous election bills that have, again, uh, kind of blizzarded the legislature since t- the 2020 presidential election. Um, this one is a bill that um, came last session to in 2021. It passed the House. It passed the Senate. But then the Senate reconsidered it, and it failed by a single vote. So in June 2020, North Dakota had an all-male election due to the COVID-19 pandemic um, an election conducted entirely by mail, and this bill would prohibit that from happening again. Each uh, county would have to have at least one physical polling place. The bill specifically states that the governor you know, cannot uh, b- basically issue a proclamation that suspends a- any rule or law or provision um, that, that would you know, essentially call for an all-mail uh, e- election. So this measure goes to the House, um, sorry, from the House to the Senate, where um, it'll be interesting to see what the vote might be with uh, 13 new senators. It was unanimously passed in the House. Correct. So one would think it would probably sail through the Senate too? Well, um, the last time around, I believe the vote in the in the Senate was uh, 25 to 22, but when it was reconsidered, it was um, 23 to 24. So Failed by a single vote, I believe it was Senator Diane Larson who asked for the reconsideration. Um, you know, the, the the flavor of this legislature can be hard to guess. You don't quite know what the Senate might do these days with all the new faces in there. Um, but we'll, we'll see. 
I will I will say it's it's often a bipartisan issue to stick it to the governor. So <laughs> you, you might see some votes for this in the Senate. Yeah, this this essentially would take away it would strip away a little bit of authority from the governor, which that's that's yeah. The legislative executive push pull it exists everywhere. Absolutely, Dave, you've written about another bill um, relative to the university system H- HB one zero zero three relative to a tuition freeze that's gotten support. Right. This is the first time in 20-plus years that they have the money, the wherewithal, to have a tuition freeze, meaning this, they're going to pick up $41 million of what would have been tuition costs, uh, about a 4 and 4 for each, each year percentage. Now, th- there's some other things in that bill that are very interesting. One is that they're going to ding the university system office for the cost of the NDSU president's buyout. Golden parachute there. The golden parachute mm-hmm. uh, plan. And then the, for ones going forward, I find this really fascinating that they're going to say, okay, you come to an agreement, but before you can implement the agreement on, on what to do with the president, you have to take it to the emergency commission and then the legislature's budget section. And boy, does that, that echo back to 1930s? When the Board of Higher Education was uh, – I'm looking at Jack who writes a lot of our Dakota Date books. But 1930s when they created the Board of Higher Education because of the interference, believe it or not, at NDSU when the then governor wanted to fire some NDSU professors. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's the argument that being – you know, you gave us the constitutional right. Why are you trying to erode those rights again? So watch for some dogfights on that. Jeremy, we're um, wrapping up here. We have about two and a half minutes left to go, but several bills backed by the North Dakota oil industry, as one might expect, have surged through the legislative pipeline. Love the headline there. (laughs) Yeah, so um, perhaps most notably, uh, the House has uh, passed a bill that would eliminate the so-called oil tax trigger. Um, That is a higher tax rate on, um, on oil production, essentially, triggered by high prices of oil. Um, The thought there, of course, uh, when it was implemented, I believe in 2015, um, was when the oil industry is doing better, the state should be doing better in collecting those taxes. Um, That bill moves forward. Um, There are a couple other bills as well that were favored by the industry, um, including a bill that would um, give some sort of tax incentives, lower the tax rate, for uh, refract wells. Those are wells mm-hmm. that perhaps are, are later in their, their lifespan that have been um, refractured to continue producing oil. Those are generally seen as less profitable. And so the um, lawmakers who approved that wanted to give a, a tax break to the, the producers that are willing to do that kind of work. And then there is also um, a, a program starting out to that would set about $7.5 million in state funds aside for grants and loans to oil companies that work to reduce the flaring of natural gas, which is, of course, always a hot topic. (laughs) Our last topic, briefly, Dave, the um, Senate has passed legislation that will make it a little more difficult to have amendments to the Constitution and specifically exile, if you will, out-of-state interests. Right, and and that uh, bill was probably uh, sparked in part because of the term limits measure that was passed and some of the questions on that. But before that, there was Marcy's Law, which was uh, basically a California billionaire who, who bankrolled that. And they're saying, look, if there's going to be a constitutional amendment, it should be grassroots from North Dakotans that would modify North Dakota's constitution, not, not these people around the state. So they're trying some efforts to try to rein that in. Dave, um, briefly, you have a legislative review coming up. It airs on our Prairie Public TV service Fridays at 7.30, Saturdays at 6, and on Prairie Public Radio at Saturday at 6.30. Who's your guest this week? My guest today is Representative Mike Nathy of Bismarck, who chairs one of the sections of House Appropriations. That's our monthly journalist roundtable with Prairie Public News Director Dave Thompson, Jeremy Turley from Bismarck-based Forum News Service, and Jack Dura from the Bismarck Tribune. Gentlemen, thanks for joining us. Thank Thank you. you. Madeline is next. Support for Prairie Public is provided by No Deck Insurance Company, with over 75 agents throughout North Dakota ready to answer your insurance questions. No Deck Insurance Company has agents with answers. Online at nodakins.com. 
Hi, I'm Tom Brusso. She's been called Canada's unsung treasure and a queer feminist folk icon. Farron's been creating music in the shadows for a while. Rediscover her music and hear her story on the next Great American Folk Show. I am looking for something outside of forgiveness. You might call it the jewel of the crown. Plus, Minnesota pop singer Brianna Barbara, Finnish singer-songwriter J.P. Kallio, and Danish jazz composer Jakob Bro, and emotional landscape painter Mandy Groom. The Great American Folk Show, Saturday at 5 p.m. Central on Prairie Public. There's the fanfare, and that means it's now time to go to the movies with our resident movie expert, Matt Oline. Matt, welcome back to Main Street. Thanks, Craig. Matt, this movie I think would be hard for me to watch. We're talking about women talking. It has, of course, been nominated for Best Picture and Best Adapted Screenplay. What did you think about the movie? Well, this was the uh, next-to-last Best Picture nominee that I've seen, and next week I will talk about Triangle of Sadness. So uh, that was the 10th film I had to see. So I've, I've finished them all off. We'll do Women Talking first, save Triangle of Sadness for next week. I was slightly disappointed by this movie. Uh, I really wanted to see this a couple months ago, but the rollout of this movie was very clunky, and I've had uh, people in the industry tell me that as well, that it was, just hard, it was a hard film to find for a long time prior to Oscar nominations. It's based on an incident and a book that was written about it that took place in Bolivia some years ago in a Mennonite community where a bunch of women left the community. The women have been abused. They have been secretly drugged and raped and things like this. Some horrible things have gone on unbeknownst to them, and they're left dealing with what should we do. Should we leave the community? Should we fight back? What do we do in a community where women have almost no rights. I mean, the women can't even read and write in this community, which is just stunning. They've moved the setting to the United States of America, although it's never quite sure what state we're in. I think the problem with this movie, which I which I think people should see, it's, it's, a, it's a timely subject. Uh, it's certainly an important subject. Uh, women being abused by a patriarchal society in this Mennonite community, of course. But the way it's handled, I thought, was very uncinematic. As a piece of cinema, it never really springs to life, Craig. It feels like a play on film. Most of the action, which is women talking, that's what it is, takes place in the hayloft of a barn in the community as they discuss what they should do. And the men have left for the time being and headed into town. So it's only women in the film except for Ben Wishaw who plays a sympathetic teacher who takes the notes at the meeting. A lot of big-name actresses, Claire Foy, Frances McDormand, Jesse Buckley, Rooney Mara, they're all very good. But the film never springs to life. It's kind of shot with sort of a dull cinematography as well, which I wasn't wild about. And you have to put the blame here at the foot of writer-director Sarah Polly, who just feels like she put a camera up in the hayloft and started shooting actors. And there's there's just, it never springs to life cinematically. It's kind of lifeless that way. There's some good dialogue. There's some good performances. Uh, but it doesn't really sustain its length with what's going on here. And I had a couple friends of mine that saw it as well that are really into movies that did not care for it as much either. Uh, I was a little bit disappointed, I must say. And it took me a good 40 to 60 minutes to figure out who was related to who. We have a meeting going on of eight to ten women, and it was very difficult for me to tell Craig who's whose daughter, who's related to who in this group of women in the Mennonite community. I didn't think that was terribly well explained. And some of the dialogue didn't ring true for me. Like, is this the way Mennonite Mm -hmm. women would really Mm -hmm. talk, or is this kind of infused with a kind of Hollywood script writer to kind of sound more like an angry woman would sound nowadays. Is this how they would speak? The dialogue didn't ring true for me. It felt a little like it was Hollywoodized, almost like they were mouthpieces. So I have to say I wanted to like this movie so much better. I am glad I saw it. It's a it's a timely issue. It's an important issue. Uh, Frances McDormand is barely in it. She was a producer on the movie. I just wish it would have been a little more cinematic. And there's a way to direct something like this that makes it spring to life. It just never quite did it. 
And Matt, it seems to me that critics agree with you that this film lacks a little bit, but it is a message that must be told, but likely doesn't have any chance to win Best Picture. Do you agree with that? Oh, completely. This has no chance to win Best Picture. I'm really surprised it got in, considering the lack of availability people had to see it in December and January when you know, Oscar nomination decisions are being made and public reaction. It's having a hard time finding an audience, not surprisingly. You know, it's definitely not a feel-good movie. Like I said, it's an, it's an important subject matter. You know, kind of like the movie She Said that came out last year as well. These are important things to talk about. I just wish it was more vibrant on screen and had more life to it. Uh, Jesse Buckley probably has the best performance in the movie, I would say, of all of them. Uh, but, you know, really, none of the women were really pushed for Oscar nominations either. And you would think it, it really on the surface felt like an Oscar bait type movie. But as I said, the rollout made it impossible almost for any of the women to be nominated for lead or supporting actress. Sarah Polly did get a screenplay nomination and it's up for Best Picture, but it has no chance to win Best Picture. I think Best Picture is going to come down to three or four movies and we can narrow those down as we get closer to Oscar Day if you want, Craig. Matt, give us a little more detail on what exactly makes a movie qualify to be considered for best adapted screenplay. What so does that mean? It has to be based on material previously published in another medium. So book, play, short story, that kind of thing. Original screenplay is something like Babylon or Everything Everywhere All at Once. Those are original screenplays that are based on things that were not published prior uh, an adapted screenplay would be if I was making a movie of Oliver Twist. Okay, that's adapted from a Dickens book, things like that. And Women Talking okay. is based on a book about what happened with the Mennonite women down in Bolivia. And they've kind of adapted it to the U.S. Matt, it's time for trivia. Okay. It is Oscar season. And I bet you know that Glenn Close and Peter O'Toole mm -hmm. have been skunked the most times. They have. For how many times? Have they not been nominated and not won an Oscar? And then who follows them in the almost made it but not quite category? So Glenn Close is still 0 for 8. We should not discount her yet, right? She's still working and could win this award. Peter O'Toole famously went 0 for 8, uh, was given an honorary Oscar. He showed up and gave a wonderful speech. Uh, always a bridesmaid, never a bride, my foot, he said. He has his Oscar finally. Richard Burton, O'Toole's old buddy, was 0 for 7. I believe he is next in line, correct? And after that, Amy Adams. Amy Adams, 0 for 6. Thelma Ritter was 0 for 6 as well, an old character act actress. And I think Deborah Carr was 0 for 6 as well. Better to have been nominated than not That's nominated true. at all. That's true. We've been to the movies with Matt Olean. When you hear arts programming here on Prairie Public, know that it is supported in part by the North Dakota Council on the Arts, and we thank them. What comes to mind when you think of sorrow? Sadness? Despair? How about joy? Joy is the evidence of our reaching across to one another in the midst of, or as a way even, of caring for one another's sorrows. Then it seems to me the case that without sorrow, it's something else. Poet Ross Gay makes the case for finding joy in sorrow. Next time on It's Been a Minute from NPR. Saturday at 2 Central, 1 Mountain. Today's Dakota Datebook is part of an ongoing weekly series produced in partnership with the Department of Public Instruction on Indigenous Peoples Themes. North Dakota Native American Essential Understanding Number 4 is about sense of humor. It states... Native people have a rich history of shared sense of humor that includes teaching stories involving Iktomi, Maimagwisi, and Nanaboju. These stories and this unique sense of humor continue to support our resiliency and cohesiveness. In today's episode of Dakota Date Book, we'll laugh along with Spirit Lake Dakota elder Catherine Howard as she tells us about rabbit and turtle and frog and turtle. Many years ago, Mama used to, uh, my mom told me that. I think my mom and my auntie told me that. Anyway, there was a, rab a rabbit and a turtle. That turtle, or that rabbit was sleeping, and, and that turtle was coming by, and they were going to 
they both start talking. And it's that turtle looked. He said, that uh, rabbit asked that turtle, he said, you want a race? That turtle oh, didn't pay attention to the rabbit. He was laying, he had his, laying there with his eyes closed. Come on, he said, I'll have a race. We'll go across the road over there, he said. She was the first one to get there, you know. That turtle would kept on. Boy, that rabbit didn't want to give. All right, let's go then. He said, boy, they took off, boy. He fast that turtle. He went and then a car came and ran over that that rabbit. That, tur- that turtle was going to, see, I told you, when you go fast, you know where you get yourself. <laughs> As I tell that to the kids. And, oh, well, oh, okay, I'm slowing down. You want to get run over or what? No, no, I'll slow down. <laughs> <laughs> so they, they, they go by that, you know. I was telling Patkashana and Mashtichana. You want to be in Patkashana or Mashtichana? So they do their work and they go, okay, anybody want to be in Mashtichana? You never hear anything. <laughs> Patkashana, they all put their hands up there, Patkashana. A turtle and a frog were sitting there visiting, talking about the weather. He said, look like it's going to be rain. He said, yeah. Tanshi, he said, uh, cousin, he said, it's going to rain. He said, what should we do? Well, we better go in before we get wet. They both went in the water, I guess. (laughs) I'm Scott Simpson. If you'd like to learn more about the North Dakota Native American essential understandings and to listen to more Indigenous elder interviews, visit www.teachingsofourelders.org. Dakota Date Book is produced in cooperation with the State Historical Society of North Dakota. Funding for this series is from Humanities ND and the North Dakota Department of Public Instruction. Coming up on this week's episode, a delightful and insightful and in-depth conversation between Clay Jenkinson and the author Joseph Ellis. Our subject this week is Henry Lawrence of South Carolina. Lawrence was a slave trafficker, in fact, the most important slave trafficker of his time in the United States, and he owned hundreds of slaves, but he became an American diplomat, was captured on the high seas, and wound up in the Tower of London before eventually he was exchanged for Lord Cornwallis, a fascinating man. And you also answer a question from a listener about how is the Boston Tea Party any different than the insurrection of January 6th? The question is, were the people that stormed the Capitol on January 6th true, deep American patriots who are trying to keep alive the little flame that we lit on the 4th of July, 1776, or were they a bunch of lawless thugs? We sort that answer to the best we can. Please join us for all that and more. Sunday at 11 Central, 10 Mountain, right here on Prairie Public. And that's a wrap for this edition of Main Street. We hope to see you again on Monday when we'll dive deep into the metaverse on our latest Philosophical Currents with Dr. Jack Russell Weinstein. Remember, you can hear all editions of Main Street at prairiepublic.org. Thanks for joining us and have a great rest of your day.